You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, you're going to introduce us to min hashing, like minimum hashing. Yeah, that's right. So there's been a lot of interest in, uh, in deep learning methods for natural language processing. And one of the things we like to do when we do NLP is think about the similarity between documents. This could be useful for trying to do information retrieval or trying to do matching or duplicate uh, elimination and different things. And there's a lot of interest in um, and finding really awesome representations, vectorial representations for uh, for natural language that would help us with these tasks. But I think it's worth in that, you know, in the kind of the broader context to just think about like, you know, what are some other ways we might think about this and are they easier and simpler and what are their properties? Another idea in the space that doesn't involve any deep learning is the idea of min hashing, which I think is a, is a really cool idea. So Broadly speaking, let's imagine that what we have is uh, we have a document. Maybe what we really have is like a query into a search engine. And we have a very large set of documents uh, in our database. And what we want to do is try to find uh, the nearest document to our query document. And the question is, how do we do that? And what does it mean to be similar? And obviously, that's that's full of, of complicated decisions. But one thing we could imagine doing is just asking, you know, how many pieces of this document are of each document are are identical or similar to the pieces of the query document. So a very common kind of thing to do is to talk in terms of what are called shingles. Shingles are kind of like convolutions if you're a deep learning person. Essentially what we're doing is taking a document as a, as a really big long string of characters and we're going to chop it into substrings of characters, say of length like 10 characters or something like that. We now can treat this big document as a giant bag of these substrings. And what we hope is that if two documents are very similar, then they have almost all the same substrings in these bags. And we take the two bags and we sift, if we sifted through all of the substrings and did all of these comparisons, it would be very expensive. But at the end of the day, we would get a score about kind of how many substrings uh, match in each one. And this kind of comparison between, uh, between sets, uh, we call that uh, computing the jacquard similarity. So that is to say how many things are shared between them, what's the intersection between the two sets, divided by the um, the union of the two sets. It, it's literally saying what's the fraction of these guys that are uh, shared between the two uh, the two sets. And so, if that fraction is very close to one, then we expect the documents to be very similar. And if the fraction is very close to zero, then they don't have anything in common. And so, maybe we don't think that these are the same. So, this is a nice intuition for reasoning about similarity. And in fact, that this measure of Jacquard similarity is might be useful for like k nearest neighbors classification, or you could imagine plugging that in as a as a as a kernel function to something like a support vector machine or a Gaussian process. Uh, it's a very kind of nice nice idea, and it makes sense intuitively that if there's a lot of overlap, they maybe these are very similar documents. The problem is is that as we've stated it, it's a very expensive thing to compute. If it's a big long document, then the, the number of sort of 10 character shingles may be enormous. So the question is how can we estimate this very efficiently? And that's exactly what the min hash uh, idea is about. What we do is we take this big collection of shingles from a single document and we turn that into a small number of integers and uh, which we can think of as being a signature. And so we take, so imagine that we take all of these documents, they're all different lengths, maybe different languages all over the place. And we take every single one of them and we turn them into a, um, a signature that's like say 200 integers. And then when we want to evaluate similarity between them, then we, uh, what we do is we, we look at the integers uh, sort of one at a time and we see how many times that they're exactly equal in the same position. And, uh, and it turns out that the, the, 
uh, fraction of integers that match between these two signatures is a uh, an estimator of the uh, of the this jacquard similarity of if you took all of these substrings and did the big expensive thing then how many of these guys how these guys uh, match and that's cool because now you can summarize these big documents with a big set of integers the question is where do these integers come from um, and the uh, and that's what the idea is of a min hash so what you do is you take your favorite hashing function so this is a function that takes some kind of input and maps it to a to an integer such that uh, sort of in any given set, it's very unlikely that we'll have um, two different things mapped to the same integer such that we'll, so we have some, that, that these collisions happen sometimes, but hopefully they don't happen too often. And so the idea is that we apply a hash function to every one of these shingles, and it gives us an integer every time. So every shingle now becomes an integer. And it's called a min hash because now we're gonna take the smallest one of those across all of those guys. And we're going to take that in this that smallest integer, and we're going to put that into say the first entry in the signature. And then we take a different hash function and do the same thing. So we apply the, this the second hash function to all of the dot, all of the shingles, take its smallest integer value, put that in the second entry in our um, in the signature, and we do that say 200 times. So we have so we have 200 hashes, and we get uh, 200 uh, 200 little integers. And so now, what's ha so now if you think about it, what's going to happen is if two documents have the same integer in the same location, then what that means is, excluding the possibility of collision, that the same string appeared in uh, some place in each of the documents. But we didn't have to actually do the sort of quadratic search in order to find that. So th that is to say, again, up to collisions, they would only be the same if, there's a th if they each have the same string somewhere. When we do that once, then we get then that's going to come back as either a zero if they don't match or a one if they do match. But if we but this is essentially reflecting uh, exactly an unbiased sort of Monte Carlo estimate, if you will, of this of this Jacquard similarity. And so then if we do it two hundred times, then we're uh, then we're getting some average of zeros and ones such that uh, it's essentially going to converge to something that's very close to the Jacquard similarity. And because they're only between zero and one, it actually converges like relatively fast. So this is a kind of a very clever trick for taking a big, possibly complicated, like natural language document and summarizing it with a small set of numbers. You know, and to me, this is also kind of exactly what we're trying to do when we come up with vectorial representations, you know, using generalizations of word to vec and things like that, where you take a big, a big bunch of natural language characters and try to turn that into a vector and then evaluate similarity in that space. This idea of summarizing things, uh, even though it's, in some, you know, as, as real valued vectors in some ways feels kind of new, it's actually, you know, something that's, that's permeated a lot, of, a lot of kind of information retrieval for, for some time. I think it's something that kind of everyone should be aware of because it's so easy to implement it and it doesn't, it actually doesn't require any learning. It's just literally doing matching of substrings. We'll have more information about minhashing on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on talking machines is about choosing the architecture of a neural network. Hi, I'm James. I was just wondering about the process you go through when choosing the architecture of a neural net for a given problem. Is there a procedure you adhere to in particular? For example, if it's a recurrent net, how do you know how many layers of LSTM units to use and how wide should each layer be? Is there a better way of choosing than just trial and error? Thanks. Thanks for the question. This is a, this is a pretty tough one. I would say step zero of choosing an architecture is to uh, first make sure that you can evaluate 
the quality of a given decision and that you trust that uh, that uh, that measure so that you can rationally decide when you found something useful. I would say that step one is to think about what invariances you might have uh, in your data. And this is the kind of the highest level decision about uh, about architecture, which is should you use something like an RNN because you have a sequence? Should you use something like a convolutional neural network because you have translation invariance? Or uh, you know, do you have any kind of structure of this form that you can take advantage of? Because that's going to make the biggest difference right away is if you build in prior knowledge about your, uh, about your problem. Uh, that sounds obvious, but it's sort of is actually the first, first decision you need to make. Um, then beyond that, this question of, you know, there, there's a variety of choices. So, uh, you know, you mentioned layers and how many of them and how big each one should be. And I think, you know, you want to, I think my, my personal preference is to treat this as, as much like an optimization problem as you can, in which you, um, sort of rationally and deliberately evaluate new points in this, this complicated space. The best intuition I've heard um, about this kind of thing is that most of the time we're limited by like the memory of a GPU. And so typically the question is given how much memory you have, you know, how are you going to, how are you gonna fill it? And at least like Jan LeCun has previously said that the, the sort of the thing you do is you make the model as big as you possibly can fit into memory reasonably. And then you regularize that using things like uh, like L2 and L1 and, and dropout and things like that that are sort of more traditional uh, regularization techniques. And that's not a very satisfying answer, I realize, that like make it bigger and then regularize. But I think that is actually the kind of the main principle. The question of how many layers is a little bit, is a little bit uh, more complicated. And, um, and typically, I think what people do is they kind of add more layers until they feel like they're seeing diminishing returns. Uh, or it becomes very hard and very expensive to train. So almost always, you're, um, you know, what you're doing is bouncing off of the um, of some kind of sort of external limitation, whether it's the memory or your time or uh, you know or, or some other kind of consideration. Uh, bigger is probably better up to the point where you can't do the thing you want to do. Um, I saw this thing just today. I think uh, I think uh, I saw posted on on Twitter where, uh, you can, you know, your model takes four days, you do a bunch of optimizations and now it runs in four hours, but you actually still run it in four days. Cause now you just make it a lot bigger and you run it longer. That really speaks to this, this external property that you always want it better. You always want it bigger. You always want to throw more data at it, but ultimately you've got to ship the system or you've got to write the paper or you've got to do whatever it is you need to do. Um, and that's going to be the determining factor. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Frank Wood, and we got a chance to sit down with him at the DALI conference earlier this year. We asked him, how did he get where he is? I'm a farm boy from Illinois who got lucky enough to get into the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy, a state-funded free residential high school for <coughs> geeks. Uh, uh, and from there, I went to the University of Illinois at Chicago, where I played trumpet to support myself, uh, uh, and then got lucky enough to have a guy who manufactures organs say, hey, Cornell's a great place to go to school. Uh, so I transferred to Cornell, and then I transferred out of E into computer science, and met a bunch of really awesome people and then left.
because I needed to make money. <laughs> so then I was a dot-com kid for a little while. I ran a content-based image retrieval company for a few years and sold that to AOL, which was maybe not the best idea at the time. What was the name of your company? It was called To Fish. Did it uh, have a sort of big machine learning component? What's that? It had a machine learning component at the time, which I would say is is laughable by by current. You standards. mean it wasn't based on deep convolutional neural networks? Um, uh, no, <laughs> thanks, Ryan. Uh, uh, and after that, I ran a company which many academics and potentially many students have interacted with called uh, Interfolio for uh, a year or two, and then got bored of the uh, the, the money making enterprise and decided to go back and do what I always really wanted to do, which is study the brain, do. Uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence or or whatever, and then uh, went to Brown, got a degree working with Michael Black and Tom Griffiths, then went to the Gatsby unit at uh, at uh, University College London, worked with UI on Bayesian nonparametrics, which we can talk about if we we care to talk about, and then uh, took a non tenure track position at at Columbia, and then finally moved over to the University of Oxford, where I am now. Uh, a professor in the engineering department, a professor of information engineering, as it were. So, Oxford's pretty good. It's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I didn't. I did not know that you you were a co-founder of Interfolio, or the founder of Interfolio. It's a complicated situation involving love and past loves and and things like that. As they do. Uh, as they do. Uh, so it, the founders were Karen Fuhrherm and Steve Goldenberg. I was engaged to Karen Fuhrherm at the time. And uh, they were having problems making the company really go. So I helped them with a couple of acquisitions and straightened stuff out and grew the company two or three times and did, did a bunch of stuff. And now the world suffers from interfolia. But <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but uh, <laughs> it's a it's inter- a useful service. Yeah, yeah. It, it occasionally. Yeah, yeah. If, if, it, it, when it appears in your inbox, you're like, uh. well, for for the for the writers, definitely, it's yeah. it's just a, a it's another task and on the on the the, the task the interminable task list. Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, so, uh, so you've been at Oxford now for two years. Uh, I think this is actually coming up. Uh, I think three, two, two or three years, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And so, you know, you've been doing lots of lots of cool stuff. But one of the things I definitely wanted to ask you about today was about Anglican. Now, uh, right away, what stands out is is its name. So, as our listeners may know, there's uh, one of the languages that has become popular in the sort of revival of probabilistic programming or the sort of second coming I don't, i'm not sure what the, that would be perfect but the uh uh, <laughs> uh is is uh, a language and system called church mm-hmm. and i assume this was your sort of protestant movement uh you're the sort of the henry the eighth um uh, it anglican is the church of england which is uh, in some senses rather an unfortunate oh, the choice church yes. of england. the church okay, of so england so it's less yes. that it's a protest against like papists than it is that it's because you're in england it's it's largely the church of england i got it it's yeah. largely a geographic thing and i feel very bad because the, the the original language church was named appropriately for one of the fathers of modern computing and programming languages and so on and so forth and we've completely uh <clears throat> changed the whole lineage of names i don't know what the next uh, the next one will be zoroastrianism or i i i, I, I don't know uh, so i mean why don't you talk about probabilistic programming and and sort of what's your take on it and why you you started this project uh 
the reason why I started is a little bit different to why I'm doing it now, but it's maybe worth thinking about anyway. The reason why I started it is is that uh, the line of research that 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 I was conducting involved building very complicated models that were richly expressive and grew in complexity as the and num- amount of data in- introduced as a function of the amount of data that they were uh, exposed to. Uh, and we can get very complicated about what that means, but the 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 reality is that for each individual research effort or each individual model that we built or each individual thing we did, it took years, sometimes years, usually between a half a year and a year of extremely talented PhD postdoc level effort in order to make any sort of progress. And then another several years for the Markov chain to mix. <laughs> can I use the, can I use the phrase Markov chain? <laughs> uh, basically we, we got into it thinking about effectively automating and making it much easier to denote the kinds of models that we were interested in, in, in investigating. Uh, and we succeeded without any question in, in, and I would say the revival that you referred to, Church, venture, web people, Anglican, the entire class of languages like this make it possible to denote any kind of model you could possibly imagine, any computable model, any, anything you want to write down as a model, we can, we can denote it efficiently. And, and there's, a, there's a litany of inference algorithms that go along with these languages, which fully automate inference, which make uh, sort of the, the investigation of new models or the iteration over models or the design of models, so on and so forth, much, much more efficient than the, than the manual process that preceded this kind of, of style of doing things. So what's the sort of, uh, what's your sort of origin story actually for this, this sort of revival? So, you know, for me, you know, my, my take on it, I mean, so, so to sort of explain this a little more, more broadly, the idea of probabilistic programming, uh, you know, Actually, you know, goes this back is good. Quite- I'm, I'm glad that you're you're going to explain probabilistic programming. It makes it a lot easier, <laughs> a lot well, easier for me. We've talked about it before, and we've interviewed like Ben Vigoda. Okay, you know, no, so no. the uh, um, the you know, so the idea of probabilistic programming goes back quite a while, and you know, certainly uh, a very long time. Yeah. Um, and and certainly, I think of the kind of the modern era of probabilistic programming maybe being bugs, uh, which is kind of a way to express probabilistic graphical models. Um, and then perform uh, perform MCMC inference in them, and it, be, it's, it became a popular tool in the social sciences. Mm. Um, and uh, and then there's been other other such tools. I think um, like uh, uh, Eyeball by uh, Avi Pfeffer mm-hmm. and um, others that I now can't remember, <laughs> but I'm sure you could enumerate. But there was a kind of a, I feel like a time kind of a, like like in kind of late 90s, early 2000s where um, people were thinking about this and then people, it didn't seem like it was really on people's minds very much for a while. And then maybe Josh Tenenbaum got excited about them or, uh, I, and, and then there was this kind of reemergence. I mean, what's, what's, what caused this to happen? That is a really, really, really interesting question. I'm not sure that it's actually that much different to, uh, what caused neural nets to become big again, which is to say that we eventually got computers that were powerful enough to do some of the sorts of things that people have been thinking about doing for a very, very long time. Daphne Kohler had a paper, you know, 20, almost 30 years ago that basically laid out exactly what we're, what we're doing now. Uh, uh, what the, what's, what's the, the origin, what's the origin story, the story as I know it, the, the reason why I became aware of this is of course the church work by the guys at, at in, in Josh's group, uh, 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 Noah Goodman, Vikash Mansika, Dan Roy, that, that whole crew started reading a bunch of, of uh, functional programming language, you know, stru- the structured interpretation of computer programs, uh, 
which is, I think, probably the best book in in in, in the computer science genre period. It's a, it's absolutely amazing. And they said, wait a second, hmm, if we have this language, what does a what does a computer language do? It actually denotes something. It denotes a procedure. And wait a second, there's actually an entire literature that also says we can denote inference problems using language as well. Uh, and what what are we really denoting? And now I'm going to switch a little bit to sort of our modern terminology. I would say that we can denote joint distributions or we can denote models uh, uh, using the language of computer program uh, uh, using computer programming language. Uh, provided that we have something novel and new and and a little bit hard to understand for the first time you really try to wrap your head around it, and apparently your listeners have already had an opportunity to wrap their head around it, so this should be easy, but uh, <clears throat> the chief characteristic of a probabilistic program is the is first the the standard ability to draw ra- values at random from distributions, but then most importantly, the ability to constrain the execution of the program based on some observable or available or uh, given data or or set of values. Uh, uh, I think maybe we're working on a a way to sort of explain this to a larger, more lay audience. Let me me try this out on you. And I have to admit, I I, I warned at least one of you that, that I that I now wear two hats as well. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and Are you funding another company? There is another company. <laughs> and the company will become really obvious, but I want to try to explain probabilistic programming in a, in a simpler way. Okay. Uh, so programs are complicated and the denotations are complicated, and we can talk about all sorts of fancy stuff, but let's break it down and be really, really simple. Ryan, what, are, what is a spreadsheet? table hmm let's switch it to equation view then then what's a spreadsheet uh it's a large set of constraints i i I love your thinking it's you're right on track i would say that a spreadsheet the contents of the cells of a spreadsheet and i don't mean the the of the 500 million licensed copies of Excel. I don't mean the the 420 million of them that are used only to basically store data. I mean the 80 million that are used for simulation of corporate finances or simulation of cash flows and or in support of a lending decision or something oh, like that. Okay? So a spreadsheet at 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 really is a very simple program that has no loops and is functional in nature. Okay. So starting in cell A1, going to Z362, there are a series of program statements that operate in a data flow kind of manner that say once the preconditions for a cell have been computed, i.e. the value has been assigned to that cell, then the computation may flow through this computation graph defined by the cell references. Okay, That's a program. It's a program. It's a very simple program, and the programming language is exceedingly simple. Great. 
you can turn this into a stochastic simulator a la Simula from 50 years ago, the first programming language that did stochastic simulation. But it's really clear to see what stochastic simulation is in a spreadsheet program. It is, And people do this by hand, too. Well, they do this by hand, but there's a, there, in fact, are a large number of companies that do Monte Carlo simulation for spreadsheets, right? But I'm just thinking about, you know, the kind of the way that maybe people reason about a business plan in a startup, right? You, you like, make this big, big spreadsheet, and, you're, and then you sort of have this conversation about, about what, if? what if I did this and what if I did this and you you sort of uh, look at several possible futures and sample from them right that's exactly right so we, we we don't even want to use the word sample because let's let's just think about scenarios that's really actually what you're doing you're saying okay what if this variable or this cell has a bad value what if the our customer uptake uh, is is poor or what if our what if the price that we can charge per unit is low and what if we can't get our first angel round before month eight or whatever there's this complicated stochastic simulation that you use for decision making right uh, the chief so that, that's great. So now we've got a programming language that has stochastic elements. You can do this, of course, manually. And in fact, it's usually done manually. But there are, there are in fact, spreadsheet packages that have you know, this random number generation in Excel. So you can do this already. So you can do Monte Carlo simulation and, and, and build simulations of the future based on assumptions about what values particular cells might take and then some forward computation that flows from that, which may also have stochasticity in it. But the essence of probabilistic programming is that you get to say, and uh, hopefully the listeners will get this as as quickly as both of you will, uh, you get to say these cells, whichever cells, C17, D32, whatever, take on particular values, i.e. you know that in the third month of operation you sold 1,072 copies of your product uh, and that you sold them for $11.32 a piece. Gross, right? Uh, Then uh, the challenge of Monte Carlo simulation is quite a lot harder and it's not so obvious how to do it anymore, but you can do it manually as well, which is to say that you can go into the spreadsheet and fiddle around with the numbers such that whatever scenarios you compute match those values in those cells, right? Or you can just stick those values in the cells and make some new model, which is probably even more, more common. But if you wanted to actually really update your assumptions and update your, your, uh, your beliefs about the future performance of your sim- simulation, future performance of the company, future simulations, then you would really like to be able to compute or characterize all of those uh, simulations or scenarios and only those simulations or scenarios that either exactly match or come very close to matching the values of those cells. So this is probabilistic program really boiled down to its very essence. That's great. Uh, So there's some simulation. There are some values that you observe about that simulation. And if you compute the conditional distribution of scenarios that match those things, or you calculate or you characterize all of those, then then you change your beliefs about what the values in the computation before those constraints were, and you change your values about what the the futures are in a probabilistically, statistically coherent, correct, safe, blah, 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 sound kind of way. 
this is an incredibly compelling view on probabilistic programming, I have to say, like where you're, you sort of really actually see these, you can imagine kind of actually seeing this, the, the values in these cells evolve and really think about kind of how these things go. I find this in some ways more compelling than writing programs as a scientist or, or a machine learning researcher to, to sort of like, uh, you know, just make my life a little bit easier. This, you can imagine a tool that actually sort of uh, really helps people answer questions. Like, you know, one kind of silly thing you could imagine, for example, is something like, okay, we're talking about forecasting and, and, and maybe this kind of process that, that a startup founder might go through mm. in which they speculate about uh, different possible business scenarios. But here's another version. You say, well, I have to go, I'm going to go pitch my company uh, next week at, to try to raise a Series A. And uh, that means I'm going to need to have achieved a certain amount of revenue. I'm going to need to tell them a story about how I achieve a certain kind of revenue by, uh, uh, by next year. Or I need to I need to prove that this particular <laughs> hypothesis about how the growth is going to look is correct. Yeah. Or like what's a and, and so you can sort of now now answer the question. What are what are sort of interesting scenarios that could achieve that, right? And so you sort of sample from this posterior distribution of different ways that would be consistent with achieving some goal, right? Uh, that's a really that's really fun. And so and and beyond that, and I think this is this is the this is the this is the the really nice thing is that there is whenever you're doing this kind of thing, and I, and I've done it in a startup setting, I've done it in you know the academic management setting, I've done it in finance settings, I've done it in consulting settings, so on and so forth. The the sort of nice thing is that quite often you write make these models, then you put data in them, and you just completely throw away what you did before. The point of being able to introduce these constraints, this probabilistic programming concept, is that the model remains the same. The the you 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 can build, you know, venture capital firm X Y Z can build their model of what their investment their ideal company model and then just plug in actuals, observing companies that they might like to invest in over a period of months or whatever, and then look at what their assumptions how their assumptions have been updated, what their beliefs about what the growth characteristics of this company might be, and what their what the value of the company would be under those updated assumptions. So, so it's it's also a model maintenance kind of thing where you yeah. the model is the model can remain the same for longer because you can just add data and add, that take the form of constraints on on a good model that underlies everything. But anyway, I think you get the idea. No, yeah, it, it sounds fantastic. And actually, one of the things that I, I really find compelling about it is that I feel like a lot of the sort of, um, a lot of the probabilistic programming agenda sidesteps one of the hardest problems, which is that, you know, you can come up with lots of syntactic sugar surrounding specification of probabilistic models. And as, as sort of computer scientists, that's the fun part, right, is, is thinking about different ways we can express models. And, and uh, but the inference is the hard thing. But in this kind of spreadsheet view, you kind of have a, a, a perhaps like unexciting uh, in some ways, like a set of syntax, you know, syntactual expressions. But it seems like inference would be a lot easier in this in, in this situation. You're not going to have a lot of the a lot of the complexities you would have in a sort of uh, a, a very syntactically rich language. Well, the sad the sad thing, and and we could go, we could we could rapidly get very 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 technical here. The magic sauce remains inference. Inference remains quite challenging, mostly because we, in say for instance, a we'll call it a spreadsheet language for for lack of a better way of describing it. In such a language, you still have discrete random variables. You still have Condition statements. There are if statements in 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 Excel. You still have non-differentiable black box functions like the ever so important IRR, right? Uh, 
uh, which is the output of an optimization, right? So that's that's a that's a that's a module that you need to be able to perform inference over. So you can't necessarily do your sort of awesome automatic differentiation straightforwardly through the entire computation graph. It, there may still be control flow issues and that sort of stuff. So making inference work in a spreadsheet computation where you have these constraints is still not an easy thing to do. And we could spend a lot of time talking about how to do it. Uh, it's not hard to envision how one might do it. And it's not so di different to the inference algorithms that are used in church and Anglican and venture and so on and so forth. But the special sauce is definitely being able to do inference. The nice thing is that you're right. It's boring. It's easy. It's, it's useful. <laughs> it's, there's, there are lots of people who are, are signed up ready to start making their decisions using this kind of, of, of one function difference in, in, in Excel uh, that basically will change the way people make decisions. I should say also, though, so taking off the, the corporate shill hat for what, just a what's second. What's the name of your company for? Uh, it's called Invria. I-N-V-R-E-A. Inverse reasoning. Yes. Uh, it's Invria Limited since, of course, we're in the UK. So uh, look us up. Uh, I, I should say that that the the point of that wasn't actually to be a corporate shill but although i do actually believe very strongly in the in the in the usefulness of that particular application the the point of probabilistic programming and the point of bringing it up was to explain as clearly as possible what's actually going on in a real probabilistic programming system that's a real probabilistic programming system but the language is for computer scientists or data scientists or people who are used to programming in Python or Lisp or Clojure or or whatever, uh, uh, cumbersome. I mean, you have to unroll every single loop in Excel, which is fine when you have a time series model, which is a you know a financial time series or something like that. It actually makes sense because you actually want to see all the intermediate computations. But if you have a full fledged uh, universal programming language with potentially even even enhanced functionality over uh, you know, higher order, uh, first class distributions, that sort of stuff. The, the kinds of models that you can express and the efficiency with which you can express them is pretty magical at this point. So as a denotation family, think in your head what's happening is this the program is running, it's hitting these constraints and what you're doing is you're reporting over the executions of whatever program that matches those executions is it's nice that we can we can do this in much much higher level languages so that if you don't want to write your your model in excel you can go to anglican or you can go to web people or you can go to chimple or dimple or whichever the one is ben Vigoda is working on now and uh uh and write incredibly sophisticated models very 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 efficiently basically solving the problem that we talked about in the beginning of individual researchers or individual data scientists who are playing with models and trying to do uh, rapid uh, prototyping is probably the appropriate domain in which uh, probabilistic programming systems really operate right now. But if you're doing model prototyping, I would highly advocate using uh, probabilistic programming languages now. They're robust enough that on you know medium data, real, in where inference rather than rather than stochastic gradient descent is the is the name of the game the systems are approaching a level of maturity that you can actually use them that's yeah. great yeah. that's that's really great to hear can you say something about you know about what you um wanted to achieve with anglican that you felt like wasn't wasn't satisfied in, in the existing systems 
the God's honest truth about about Anglican is that uh, it it emerged because I wanted to understand as clearly as possible exactly what was going on. And the only way to do that, and really, if you want to understand how an engine works, you got to take one apart and put it back together again and figure out that the three screws that are missing don't actually matter why that's confusing right so it's the same thing with a with a with a with a a programming language or a or particularly a probabilistic programming language because you're marrying together a whole bunch of traditional programming languages computer science tools and technologies of which i should say uh my my team don't uh, don't put me up here on some sort of dais or something like that my team has been responsible for a huge amount of 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 work on both the programming languages, infrastructure, compilers, program transformation side, which I'm woefully weak on, uh, and on the inference side, which, so, you know, you have to, you have to figure out how to marry both of those. And if you don't do it yourself, you, you, uh, you just, you just can't understand really. You can use it, but you can't understand what's, what's in the guts. Right. So. No, that's, that's a great reason. So, but what, I mean, can you, what are some, what are some, there must be some choices that you point, that you can point to that you're like, ah, this is why you should use, why you should use Anglican or, or not. Well, that's a slightly different question. So why should you use Anglican? Uh, I think, let's start with why you should use a, a probabilistic programming language. Okay. If you want to do model prototyping and you don't want to write an, uh, uh, or customize an inference algorithm for every single model you try out, you should use a probabilistic programming system. Uh, there are a number that you could choose from. I'm partial to Anglican. Uh, there are people who would be partial to Venture. There are people who would be partial to web people, so on and so forth. What are Anglican's special characteristics? Um, it's, uh, uh, it's based on the JVM. So it's uh, meant to be syntactically transparent. The Java compatible. virtual machine. That's the Java virtual machine. So it, it's, it's written in Cloture. And although it is a separate language, we've made it syntactically more or less... Uh, uh, indistinguishable from Cloture. Uh, and being that Cloture is a just-in-time compiled language, so Anglican is just-in-time, is CPS transformed and then just-in-time compiled to Cloture. Cloture is just-in-time compiled to the JVM, which means that in any of your uh, Anglican programs, you can use any Java or Scala, Scala primitive or uh, anything basically that, that runs on the JVM or is connected through JNI or whatever to uh, basically via form function interfaces to, to be callable from the JVM, we can automatically use as part of part of Anglican. Wow. And I guess you can plug into all kinds of other things that know how to talk to the JVM, like, I don't know, MATLAB and stuff like that. Uh, MATLAB or, or fancy uh, deep net packages that I know somebody has worked on a little bit. Uh, yes, absolutely. If I'm if I'm really honest, a lot there are a lot of sort of pra data science practitioners that that do a, understand very well how to write in Python and how to use libraries and how to under understand how to uh, to think. I don't know. I, I don't want to say bottom up style or uh, or regression style or supervised learning style. But there's a couple of there's a couple of things that you have to get over to get into any of the languages. So if you're going to get into Anglican, you have to get over the fact that it's cloture. It's effectively a Lisp. So if you're not used to functional programming, there's uh, a one to two, if I'm honest, weak 
you know, you have to learn how to program in Clojure, then you have to learn how to program in Anglican, and then in order to program in any of these languages, you have to know how to think generatively rather than uh, discriminatively. And that, for people who haven't done discriminative machine learning is actually quite natural, but depending on exactly whom I'm speaking to uh, or to whom I'm speaking, uh, reversing a, a, a long series of undergraduate and graduate courses that call for I have X and Y pairs and I'm going to learn something that goes between them efficiently, that's pretty differently different to thinking about I have X and I'm going to think about how that got generated uh, uh, those two hurdles are are difficult to get over. And for that reason, again, not putting on the corporate shell hat at all, thinking in that in this sort of Excel way is, I, I think, actually extremely illuminating in terms of what it means to think generatively. Totally agree. Yeah. Uh, and how conditioning could happen and what you get from conditioning, right? So... You know, if you're a JavaScript person and you want to do web integration and you want to do uh, uh, integration into your web stack, then web people's probably for you. Of course, it's a functional subset of JavaScript, and there's some funny things you still have to think think generatively. The Stanford tool is great. If you're a Python person, then you should definitely look up Venture. We have they perform very differently. These different languages. I'm particularly proud of Anglican's performance. My sort of uh, entrepreneurial sort of corporate backgrounds means that, and the and the and the team of people who have helped me. And I should name all of them because they're they've been incredibly helpful and and, and awesome. We've been very lucky to have s- senior, uh, <laughs> uh, serious programmers be involved in the in the effort, which means, you know. We have scalable, multi-threaded, super parallel, really fast inference that works on on larger models than a lot of the other languages work on. And if you're okay with inference, it's it's good. I should also just mention that uh, if you happen to be in the in the in the land where you can use Stan, you should probably use Stan. <laughs> I mean, but there are a whole a whole ton of models that you would like to that you might like to write, and and I would say that where the special sauce is is where you can think about theory based or simulation based models for the domain. If you're in, if you're able to 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 say my my problem of interest is one in which. I can write down some sort of simulator that gets very close to the true generative process, even if that simulator is something that you would have absolutely no idea how to do inference in. That's almost the ideal scenario for using one of these probabilistic programming systems, right? Uh, you know, my sort of classic example, which we've never even written a piece of code for, is you know, uh, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to to tell when matzo is going to be uh, purchased frequently. <laughs> right, you can do this in a data-driven way, and you can wait for years and years and years and years and, and recognize that there's a particular calendar period in particular states and particular regions and, and particular parts of the world where this particular product gets purchased disproportionately often. 
Or you can write a simulator for the customers who are walking into your store uh, and the time of year and the particular holiday schedule and have a theory-based model of what the individual action agents or, the, or, the, or an aggregate population is doing. That's just a program that says, if it's this time of year... Probability of Passover? <laughs> Potentially. Or if, this, if it's this time of year, look out turkeys, right? It, it, there's, there's, there, we have a huge amount of information that's available to us that we know and we can embed into our models. And it's quite difficult to do if you don't have uh, a general purpose model that allows you, modeling language that allows you to write down simulators or write down uh, theory-based models of the phenomena that you're interested in. Frank Wood, really interesting to hear about the work that he's doing in probabilistic programming. Just fascinating stuff. Yeah, and he's got such an interesting background. He's got so many cool war stories about different companies he's worked with and, and labs he's been in. Definitely. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. <laughs>